Well, good morning, Parkside. It is good to be together uh, once again. I brought water. I may need it. We'll see. And I wanted to announce once again that um, if uh, I will try not to talk too overly long, but I have been told once or twice that I'm long-winded. So it's possible that I will go on and on. And if I do that and you find yourself sweltering where you are, I want to point out again that there are a couple of chairs available over here. So if you just want to get up and walk over there, it won't interrupt me. It won't interrupt anybody else. And there's lots of shade over here. We have two guys sitting in it taking advantage of it. So if you want to uh, pick up and move to the shade, go ahead and do that. And um, you could probably uh, find a young guy somewhere who would carry your chair for you so that you could just walk over there and then we would uh, uh, feel better about you sitting in the shade rather than sweltering in the sun. Um, I will try to uh, be quick, but I don't always obey that even though I desire to do so. And so um, with that being said, happy Mother's Day, and it is uh, great to be together with you and um, celebrate our moms. And I think about, you know, I'm feeling a little warm up here, and, and I'm wearing a tie, and woe is me, and my mom went through labor to give birth to me, okay? So I can wear a tie in the sun on the day when we're celebrating our moms. We are grateful for our moms, and uh, we praise God for you and the moms in our lives, not just our own moms, but those in our lives. Uh, we praise the Lord uh, that he has given us moms. And uh, so uh, if you would take your Bible and open to Romans chapter 7, uh, I would appreciate that. I, I want to reiterate once again that uh, you may be so tempted to like applaud and honk and stuff during this, but uh, just keep the, the applause to a golf clap if it happens and try not to honk. We want to honor our hostesses and uh, not upset them too much. So I would encourage you uh, to that end that we um, try to be respectful of them as well. We're in Romans chapter 7, and you may be thinking it is uh, Mother's Day, and shouldn't you be preaching on a, a passage that will make moms feel good, that will encourage moms, that will uh, uh, get them through their day, that will uh, make them excited to be moms, that will make them remember why they entered into uh, this stage of their life and all of those things. Why, why don't I preach from one of those passages? And, uh, but instead, we're going to work our way through the latter half, the second half of Romans uh, chapter 7, which I will read in just a moment. And I will give you my rationale before we start of uh, why I chose to stick with this passage rather than going to uh, another one that might come to mind uh, for you on Mother's Day. Here's my rationale. First of all, we've been out of Romans for quite a while. We've taken several weeks where we've done sermons that have been somewhat connected because of our context in which we find ourselves, but thematically with one another, not really connected. And so we've done that for quite a while, a number of weeks now. And I would like to uh, come back to Romans and kind of pick up speed where we were in Romans before. And so that, that may be somewhat self-serving in that sense, but I think it's helpful to all of us to come back to the argument that we've been working through to understand Romans. And that's because of the second rationale that I have of wanting to do Romans chapter 7. And that is that moms need good theology. Moms need good theology, strong theology, clear understanding of what the Bible says about who God is and who we are. 
So moms, no less than anyone else, need to know good, sound theology. Moms deal with major life issues. They have maybe the single greatest impact on the next generation. They deal with big stuff. And so they need to have clear theology. It's interesting when I uh, reflect on the, the, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the greatest theological influence in his life, investing into him, was the woman who worked in the kitchen at the school he attended. And here, Spurgeon, who's a theological giant, and he said the greatest influence was this woman who worked in the kitchen, who discipled me through the scriptures while I was at school. So moms need strong theology, as strong a theology as anyone, and that's because of the third reason, my third rationale for staying in this passage on Mother's Day. Mothers wrestle with sin just like the rest of us do. Just like the rest of us do, they deal with sin in their own lives, and more than that, they deal with sin in their children's lives. So they need to understand about sin. They need to understand about Christians and sin. So moms need good theology. And I think there's an added weight that moms feel because they know how much of an impact their life has on their children's lives that their impact from their life on their children will last for decades and perhaps generations in ways that other people's impact on them won't. And so moms feel that weight. Moms feel that weight of their own life as it impacts their children's lives. So why preach on this passage on Mother's Day? Well, it's certainly not the most obviously encouraging passage that I could have chosen for this day. But if we will pay attention to what Paul is arguing here, if we will follow what he says and if we will learn what he says, we will find very profound and practical help for our lives, for how we deal with sin in our own lives. And moms need that just as much as the rest of us. So with that introduction to our passage, you have Romans chapter 7 open. I'm going to read uh, verses 13 through the end of the chapter. Paul is speaking here. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. 
For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Let's pray. Father, we resonate with this passage. Perhaps more than any other passage in the Bible. We would rather not resonate with this passage. We would rather not be able to identify with what Paul is saying here. We would rather not have such an experience in our own lives, and yet we can, and we do. We read this chapter and we see ourselves. We see that in our inner man, we, we love your law. We desire to obey you. We desire to give you glory in every aspect of our lives. And yet we see practically in our lives there's another law at work spoiling what my inner man would desire. And so I so often end up sinning. Father, I pray that as we come to your word this morning that we would seek what you have in your word. Seek to understand what Paul means here, what you mean here, and that we would be able to understand that and then apply it to our lives, understanding how it impacts and helps us. Father, we need your help, and so we ask for it. Father, I ask that, uh, that you would help us as we're sitting in the sun, and many are not used to that, and they may uh, grow faint, they may uh, get too hot. I pray that you would uh, cool them down. I pray that you would give them the courage to get up and walk across in front of everybody to go sit in the shade so that they can cool off. I pray that you would bless us physically this morning as we uh, deal with these elements, which are great elements, uh, but I pray that you would uh, protect us from them as much as we need that. So, Father, we ask for your help, and we declare that if uh, you are to be honored, if you are to be glorified, if there are spiritual things to be accomplished this morning, we need you to do them. And so we ask that your spirit would be at work in the proclamation of your word, even this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I read all the way from verses 13 on, but our passage <clears throat> that we're going to focus on really is only on verses uh, 14 through the end of the chapter. We already covered 13 last week. But I want to uh, jump into what I've entitled in verses 14 through 17. I've entitled the Christian under duress. The Christian under duress. 
You see, first of all, he, he states there in verses 14 through 17, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I not, do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. The law is of the Spirit. What that means is, primarily, it's given to us by God. It is spiritual. It comes from Him. It represents His character. It's given by Him by means of His Spirit to us through the inspiration of not just Moses in writing the Pentateuch, but the other prophets and now New Testament writers. The law comes to us via the Spirit. The Bible comes to us via the Spirit. It is spiritual and as such it represents God and His goodness. It is untainted. It is unmixed with evil, with lies. It is pure and it is true and it tells us what is good and right and true so the law is of the spirit it is spiritual but i secondly am of the flesh i am of the flesh i want to pause here for a second and comment that there has been a major debate nearly since the beginning of the church about whether this passage is a discussion of the the the, the life of an unbeliever Someone maybe before he comes to Christ and the dominion of sin in his life and how he can't break free and, and things like that. There, there's been a discussion of whether that is what's being described in this passage or whether Paul is talking about the life of a Christian. And I don't want to go into the whole argument of why I believe what I believe, but you can look at your outline and see. I think Paul is talking about himself as a Christian that this is the struggle he's in. That though he has been redeemed in his inner man, though he loves the law of God, though he recognizes that it is spiritual, and though he wants to do it, he desires to do it, he recognizes the law is good, yet he lives in the flesh. He continues on in this body. And I, I could make an argument for that, and now is not the time for that, but if you just look at your own life, just observe the, uh, your own struggles in your life as a Christian. And you will see yourself in Romans 7, 14 through 25. This is about Christian struggles. This is about normal Christian struggles. This isn't the Christian who is off the rails. This isn't just the Christian who is... Uh, has gone away from church, has, is really struggling with massive, egregious sin in his life. This is normal Christianity. This is what you experience and what you're going through. This is what I experience and what I'm going through. This is normal Christianity. I am of the flesh. Though he's been redeemed in his inner man, we're going to refer back to uh, chapter 5 and even chapter 6 and earlier parts of chapter 7 a little bit today, which you have to keep in mind in order to be able to understand this passage. If you were just to open up your Bible to Romans seven thirteen and try and determine, is this about a Christian or about a non-Christian, 
You're not starting in the right place because that's not where Paul started. You have to start from the beginning. Go back at least as far as chapter 5 and see that in our inner man, we have been redeemed in Christ. We were born in Adam. And we've been transferred into Christ. And having been born in Adam, we received and inherited all of those things that come to us in Adam. Sin, enmity with God, spiritual death, judgment. Those are the things that we inherit from our first father, Adam. But in Christ, we inherit all that is in him. Obedience, righteousness, acceptance with God, eternal life. Those are the things that we inherit by being in Christ. But, Christian, you've been transferred from Adam into Christ, and yet, and yet, chapter 6 happens and discusses what's our relationship with sin. If we were, if we were completely redeemed, if we were 100% of us redeemed, why would we ever struggle with sin? We wouldn't. But we do. It's clear that we do. Well, his description in chapter 6 and into chapter 7 is the fact that our outer man is not yet redeemed. There is an aspect in which we have already been redeemed in our inner man. And there is an aspect in which we have not yet been redeemed and won't be until glory, until the resurrection, when our outer man is redeemed. And we will be wholly in Christ. We will be entirely redeemed in our whole man. But we're not there yet. We live in this body. We live with this sin nature. We live in this world. We live with the enemy around us and the enemy within. And so I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I didn't sell myself under sin. That's not what he's talking about. Sold under sin by Adam because of Adam's choice. Now, I've inherited it. And I've followed right along in doing what Adam has done. But I inherited that I was sold under sin by Adam. And by virtue of the fact that I am still in him in part. Because I've not been entirely redeemed. There's part of me that, that has yet to be redeemed entirely in the future. That will happen in glory. That will happen in the resurrection. But it's not yet. And so we see... Paul wrestling with this issue that the Christian is under duress. In his inner man, he's been redeemed. In his inner man, he wants to obey God, and yet his inner man is not all that he has. He has his outer man as well. And so he moves into verses 18 through 20, the Christian's sin, which is kind of an explanation of the case. Verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He says, first of all, I desire to do right. I desire to do right. In my inner man, I want to obey God. I've been... I've been reconciled to Him. I love His law and I want to obey His law. I want to obey Him. I want to give Him glory. 
And so I desire to do what is right. Notice when he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me. There's not a period next. There's a comma. That is in my flesh. Because who dwells in Paul? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's good. So if he were to say just flatly, nothing good dwells in me, end of story, that would be a lie. The Holy Spirit dwells within him. And secondly, he's been made new. He's been made alive. In other places, he calls it the new creation, which already exists for everyone who is in Christ. He is a new creation. And so he says, nothing good dwells in me. That, that is in my flesh. So he's making a distinction here in who he is. There is an aspect of him in which there is good. And in that aspect, which he calls his inner man, he calls his mind, that inner being, that aspect of him which is redeemed, has good dwelling in it, has been restored into right relationship with God, has been redeemed, and yet his flesh has nothing good dwelling in it. And so, secondly, I wind up doing wrong. I wind up doing wrong. In my inner man, I want to do what is right. The law is good and I want to obey it. But there's nothing good dwelling in my flesh. And I don't think that's just a reference to the physicality, to the physical part of our nature or the physical part of our makeup. It certainly includes that. But I think it goes deeper than that into our sin nature which he calls sin that dwells in me a couple of times in this passage. So I wind up doing wrong. Well, that can happen in a couple of ways. One is the internal wrestling match that happens in me, and you, you can identify with this. You don't have to look beyond your own nose to see this. You have a desire to do what is right, that you want to be obedient to God. You want to do what he says because you love him. You love his law. You love his character. You love his requirements. You want to reflect that. And yet... There is a part of you, your flesh, that just wants to go its own way. It just wants to do its own thing. It just wants to worship itself. And so a wrestling match happens. And when that wrestling match happens, sometimes, perhaps even often, the flesh wins. And you end up going and doing the thing that really, deep down, you, in your inner man, in your mind, didn't want to do. And so you go that direction, you obey the flesh, you walk into sin, and Paul says, I end up doing what I didn't want to do. But there's a second way that can happen. That second way is that in your inner man, you love to obey God, you want to honor Him, and so you take steps to honor Him. You, you perform actions, you go and do things that you know will be honoring to Him, the way you talk to your neighbor, the way you talk to your wife, the way you discipline your children. You come to church... You do things that will honor him. And so your inner man says, I love to obey God. This would be obedient to God. I'm going to go and do it. But even while you do that, you take your flesh with you. And your flesh, in small ways, perhaps even imperceptibly to us, poisons the things that we do so that, yeah, we ended up doing that thing. But there was an element of it, like a scum on the surface, that did it because it made me look good that did it because you would notice what I did, that did it because I can put it like a notch on my belt. There's something about me that's mixed in with everything that I do. 
I am still in the flesh, of the flesh. I am still sold under sin. And so in those two ways, whether in blatant sin or just the taint of even the good things that we do, sin dogs us. It nags at us. It follows us along. It clings to us. And that's because, thirdly, of the Christian saboteur indwelling sin that he talks about verses 21 through 23. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. There is a saboteur, there is an indwelling enemy. I love God's law in my inner being. As a believer, Paul has become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which he was committed. Chapter 6 and verse 17. In verse 18, he has become a slave of righteousness. In verse 2 of chapter 6, in his inner man, he has died to sin with Christ. He is dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Chapter 6 and verse 11. And as he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, which if you don't have memorized, you should memorize, where he talks about if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. So Paul says, I love God's law in my inner being. We've been made new in our inner being. So we love what God requires. We love his character. So I'll pause here for just a second and say, that statement is true for every Christian. If, however, when you encounter God's law, you continue in disagreement with God's law, you don't like God's standard. And you persist in not liking God's standard. You need to ask the question of whether you really are a Christian, whether you have really been redeemed. Now, the Christian will read the law and scratch his head and say, I don't get that. And he will continue to study it. And he will find help. And he will look for explanation. And when he understands it, he will come to agree with it and he will come to love it because it's the reflection of his father's character. That may be a progression. That may not happen instantly. But if you persist in disagreeing with God's law, I just don't like that about God's law. I just don't like that about his character. You might need to ask the question of whether your inner man has really been redeemed or whether you are entirely outside looking in. Can you agree with Paul when he says, I love God's law in my inner being. The Christian does. But I have a contrary law in my outer being. I have a contrary law in my members. We talked about this back in chapter 6. We talked about our members and what does it mean by members. And I defined it back then. It's very similar to our mortal body, though not identical, I don't think. Your members are the parts of you that can be used to obey or to disobey God. Your members are your hands, your, your mind, your mouth. They can all be used to serve God. They can all be used to serve righteousness. Or they can be used to serve sin, to serve unrighteousness. 
And so those aspects of you that can be used for obedience or disobedience to God, I think that's what he's defining as members. It's not just the physical parts of our body, but it is our inner being as well. It is an aspect of our inner being. He says several times, in my inner man, in my inner being, in my mind, I love God. I'm clearly in Christ from Romans chapter 5. But in my members, there's aspects of that that's internal and there are aspects of that that are external. I see a contrary law in my outer being. And so there hasn't been a whole lot of hope yet today. My desire, however, to this point is that you've been following along, that you've been able to understand exactly what he's talking about and maybe that you've recognized it in your own life that you've seen in your own life, in your own behavior, in your own history. Yeah, I, I identify with this. And the desire is not just that you be able to say, yeah, I see myself in Romans 7, but that you understand his argument. That you understand his argument. You understand why we sin, why there is this internal wrestling match within us. And so that brings Paul in the last couple of verses, 24 and 25, to the Christian's ready hope. I almost called this the Christian's only hope, which is also true. But that, I think, conveys a little bit of helplessness. God, if you don't help me, nobody's going to help me. I'm at the end of my rope, and this is it. As if he's a little bit desperate, a little bit helpless. Well, he's desperate in a sense, but that hope is so ready. It is right there that he wants to uh, put it in different terms. He wants to put it in hopeful terms, I believe. And so we read in 24, his cry of his own desperation of himself. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Can you relate to that? I can relate to that. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He says, I live on in the flesh. I live in a body of death. Don't worry, the hope is coming. The hope is coming. But if you don't understand your need for hope, hope doesn't look like hope and you won't reach out for it. You won't look for it if you don't understand your own need and your own lack. And so he starts off very clearly, wretched man that I am. I've got nothing. Who will set me free from this body of death or better, the body of this death that I've just been describing? Because I have internal life. I have eternal life because I'm in Christ and yet there's a constant death that happens in my life as I see this war between flesh and spirit, as I see the war between my outer man and my inner man, my, my, my inner being and my members, my mind and my body struggling against one another, and it feels like death. Who will set me free from the body of this death? The triune God will deliver me. The triune God will deliver me, Paul says, he says, thanks be to God. He's talking about the Father. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then all of chapter 8 is going to be talking about the ministry of the Spirit in your life. The triune God will rescue me. The triune 
God will deliver me, will set me free from the body of this death. It's the Father's plan. It comes from Him. It's what He's intended from before time. And He's accomplished it by sending His Son, Jesus. Who behaved perfectly. Who loved God's law in His mind and in His body. Who walked in obedience. And then took that penalty upon Himself. So that we, by faith in Christ, would be placed in Him. Out of Adam, in Him, redeemed, inheriting all those things from Him. But I still live in this body. What am I going to do? Well, that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. And so I want to finish with application. I want to finish with application on this. You, you feel like I've left you hanging. and So I'm going to nudge into chapter 8. I'm not going to cover it in detail, but I want to talk about what he argues in chapter 8. We'll get there, and we'll talk about it piece by piece. But right now, I want to give us the direction that he goes. First of all, looking to the commands and our own determination to start keeping those commands will not lead to your sanctification. Will not lead to your sanctification. That is looking to your flesh to do what it cannot and will not do. That is looking to the law to do what it has failed to do. Because you are the weak link. I am the weak link and cannot keep it. So we must not look to the law for our sanctification. We must not look to our own flesh and our grit for our sanctification. That's a negative application. He's been arguing all through chapter 3, well, all through uh, the first several chapters of the book, he's been arguing that the law will not avail for your justification to make you right with God. It requires the Spirit of God working through Christ. And now the law will not avail for your sanctification either. It requires the Spirit of God working through Christ, which is what all of chapter 8 is about. And so, in summary, as an application, here's the way to grow in true obedience to God. You all want to hear that. I want to hear that. I, I want to grow in this. This is how growth happens in true obedience to God. So we need to reflect back to chapter 5. We were born in Adam. We inherited his sin, his guilt, his corruption, his death. We reflect on that. We can't leave that behind because it's the foundation, it's the bedrock for the argument that he's making. And then we were placed in Christ by faith. Pr placed in Christ by what he calls in that chapter the free gift of grace. He continually in chapter 5 refers to this gift as the free gift of grace. God puts us into Christ and thus we inherit justification. We inherit eternal life. In short, we inherit redemption as the free gift of grace given to us by God because of Jesus and applied to us by His Holy Spirit. The problem is that our outer man is still in Adam. It remains unredeemed until the resurrection. But our inner man is in Christ, no longer in Adam. And that part is redeemed. A part of you is yet unredeemed, yet while your mind is already redeemed, while your inner man is already redeemed. That will be resolved in the future, but it has yet to be so. The part of you that is most deeply you, 
that Paul usually refers to as I in this passage, the part that is most deeply you is redeemed and is in Christ. So how do you grow in true obedience to God? That inner part of you, the the part that's most deeply, most truly, finally you, wants to obey him. So how do you grow in true obedience? By growing and being strengthened in your inner man, in your mind, in the part of you that is already a new creation in Christ Jesus. How do you do that? Well, you need to feed that part of you that agrees that the law is good and wants to obey it. Okay? Still not helpful. How do I do that? Here's how. By calling to mind and meditating on the grace of God in Christ. That's what Paul's been doing for the last several chapters. He's been calling to our mind. He's been dissecting. He's been examining. He's been putting before us, explaining, studying, dwelling on, simmering in the grace of God in Christ. That's how we grow in our inner man. He spent all these chapters looking at that so that we will do the same. He's not just explaining the doctrine of justification so we will be able to pass a test somewhere or impress our Sunday school teacher or just even have sound theology. He's doing it because he wants it to be uppermost in our minds. He wants it to be up here so that we're looking at it, so that we see it, so that our mind is focusing on it, dwelling on it, and by doing that is growing and being strengthened. That's what he wants us to do. So that Christ and his grace would be so elevated in our thinking that we begin to have a soul-gripping appreciation of him. That we love him more and more. We value him more and more. We see how wonderful he is. We see how wonderful he is towards us. We don't just know that he has grace towards us. We know in our guts that he has grace towards us and it is magnificent. It is wonderful. And so we hold up Christ before ourselves and love him more and love him more. And I begin to hate my sin more because I love Christ more. My mind comes to love him more than my members love to sin. I'm strengthening my inner man and my sin nature is weakening. As if I'm feeding one and starving the other. I'm growing my inner man by feasting on Christ. Listen to this from chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's the same word. He's referring back to his inner man, his inner being, his mind, the part of him that is truly Deep down, Him. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that happens 
when we feed our inner man, when we renew our minds, when we lift Christ before us, we look at His grace that He has given us, that God has given us in Him, that free gift of grace that's ours in Christ. We examine it. We love it more. We examine it more. We're in awe. We come to hate our sin more. We come to love Him more. And I want to obey Him. And there's, there's no way sin is going to have its way. Because I love Jesus too much. I want Him too much. I want to honor Him too much to let my, my flesh have its way. And so where is their hope? How can we be set free from the body of this death? You go back to verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So which will you feed? Which will you feed? He encouraged us in chapter 12, renew your mind, which isn't just your thinking capacity. It's not just your brain. It's not just your logic or your reasoning. It's the deepest down part of you that is you. That will always be you. Feed that part that loves God's word, that loves Jesus the Savior, that hates sin. Continue to feed that and grow that part of you. He calls it renewing your mind. This is the essence of Christian piety. This is the essence of, of what it means to walk with Christ. It's not rules. There are rules that fit in. We'll get to that. But the essence of Christian piety is lifting up the grace of God in Christ before us in such a way that we love Him more. We're amazed that we wonder. This is what Paul was referring to back in verse 6 of chapter 7 when he said, he, he refers to serving in the new way of the Spirit rather than in the old way of the written code. It's not a better written code. That's not the point. It's the new way of the Spirit. Because as we feast upon Christ, as we are in awe of Him, the Spirit of God builds us and grows us and strengthens us and puts to death the deeds of the flesh in our bodies so that we walk with Him more and more because we love Him more and more because deep down in our inner man, we are being strengthened by the Spirit of God as we focus upon the grace of God that is ours in Christ. And when sin rears its head, we confess that sin as yet another reason for us not to look to ourselves, but only to look to Christ. And we become all the more grateful and all the more Christ-focused. I want to close with Paul's words from Ephesians chapter 3. You'll recognize these, but in light of the present discussion, in light of the present conversation, the things that have been brought up, I think it will make even more sense. Ephesians chapter 3, starting verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, 
that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's the same topic. It's the same thing that he's telling us. How to have Christian victory over sin. How to walk in this life. How will we be set free of the body of this death? Ultimately, the resurrection. But until then, the Spirit of God is at work within us, even to give life to our mortal members, as we are renewed in our minds by looking to Christ. And so it's Mother's Day. And I gave my rationale for why to preach this on Mother's Day. My, my hope is that, my trust is that each of us here, moms included, will have a better grip on what is that ugly wrestling match that goes within me that Paul would call the body of this death. And how can I deal with it? And the answer is not surprising. But it's profound and it's one we need to continue to look to. And that is that we look to Christ. We look to Him and what He has accomplished for us the work that He has finished for us, that we get to stand before God, forgiven, clothed in His righteousness, which has been given to us, our sin done away with, and His righteousness put to us, so that we stand before God redeemed in Christ with this eternal life. And we rejoice. And the more we rejoice, and the more we think about that, and the more we... Give Him glory for that, the more our inner man grows. And the more we are strengthened with power through His Spirit in our inner being for the fight that is this Christian life. Let's pray. Father, we have a lot to think about from this passage, and this is perhaps one of the more difficult passages in some ways in, the, in, in Romans. But I think it's extremely helpful. I see myself in these verses. And my guess is each one here who knows you sees himself or herself in these verses. And so we rejoice for this teaching from your word. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand what it means that we are already redeemed and yet we are not yet entirely redeemed. And help us to renew our minds. Help us to be strengthened with power through your Spirit in our inner being. That we may walk with you, rejoicing in you, and rejoicing in this redemption that we have in Christ. Father, I pray that you would bless each of our mothers today with those truths. They'll receive flowers, I hope. They'll receive uh, hugs, I hope. They'll receive... Um, thanks and have dinner made for them and things like that. We rejoice in our moms, but 
The blessing I desire the most for our moms today is that they would understand how to wrestle with their own sin. I pray that you would bless them with that great blessing. Father, we, we love you and we thank you for the breeze that cools us off just a little bit. We thank you for the opportunity to meet here. And we thank you most of all for Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. This free gift of grace that is in him. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before I dismiss you, uh, just a couple of things. I, I don't know what time it is right now. You, you do because you're sitting in your car and you can look at the clock. <laughs> but uh, we need to be entirely 100% out of here by 1130. So we need to clear out just so operations can continue uh, as normal. And I want to say again thank you to Ted uh, very much for hosting. We appreciate it. He bent over backwards and moved a lot of things. And, and uh, uh, we, we appreciate it. So thank you very much, Ted. Um, and all who helped with that. And again, there were a bunch of people uh, from the church who bent over backwards to be here early, to put together plans for things, to work with sound and do that stuff. We, we appreciate you guys. Thank you for sacrificing when the elders said, hey, we have an idea. Let's uh, do this uh, quicker than really could be done. And they did it. So excellent job. Uh, as you're leaving, be very careful again, please. There are little kids and chairs and stuff like that. So be careful. Leave at, you know, three miles an hour. That would be great. And get out of here safely. Uh, we would appreciate that. At the gate, we're going to have gifts for moms. And uh, so um, moms, feel free to grab those on the way out. And um, finally, happy Mother's Day once again to all of you. And I want to read just in conclusion this... Uh, because I didn't finish. Some of you noticed who have Ephesians 3 memorized, you notice I didn't finish. I want to continue on. And this is our um, uh, parting words that we want to continue from Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen and amen. God bless you all. Happy Mother's Day, and you're dismissed.